Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cole. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to focus on one of the regions that has a extremely positive reputation, perhaps even the best reputation, and that is the Nordic region. And so to to kick us off, Simon, is it indeed your view that the Nordics have the best regional reputation of all? And how do they perform in good country as compared to the nation brands index? Well, of course, comparing regions is difficult because it's it's apples and pears, isn't it? And they're all different sizes. As a as a cluster, I would say probably the, the European Union or, or Europe more broadly undoubtedly has the best, the best global image. But within that, there's this cluster of Nordic countries and they tend to cluster towards the top. So they do very well. In the Nation Brands Index, they're pretty, mal, pretty much always in the same order, almost wh- whatever you're looking at. Sweden comes first, always. It's the best known of the lot. I think this is partly cultural. I often say that the Swedes are the Americans of Europe, or rather the Americans of Scandinavia, in the sense that uh, they're natural showmen and showwomen. They produce a lot of famous branded products. They tend to shout about themselves, and all of the other Nordics are rather secretly rather envious of this, although uh, often criticise it. And then a few, uh, a few places further down, you tend to get Norway next, uh, Norway is well known as a as a as a peacemaker. Denmark lags behind the two, and that's partly because of the echoes of the infamous cartoon episode all those years ago, which is still detectable. And then Finland oh, comes along. Two thousand six, and that's yeah. still detectable. Wow, it's still okay, detectable. The after, aftershocks are still there, and we can we can go into a bit more detail in in that later on. I think it's a it's a very um, instructive uh, case study. And then, and then Finland comes last of that group of four Nordics, not because it's less well regarded than the others, but just because it has a somewhat lower profile. It's not as well known. We don't normally include Iceland, Greenland, the Faroes, uh, Orland and other components of the Nordic region, but no doubt they would come somewhat lower than those four if we did. But in terms of good country, when, when we start to think about what they are actually doing, because we should remind listeners that good country is adjusted for the wealth of the place. So it's, it's a mechanism of using accessible indicators to work out what countries are, are actually doing to mm. promote the common good or further the common good in the world. I think Sweden is uh, the most twice now has been the uh, number one. Is that correct? Yep, Sweden uh, in the current edition of the Good Country Index, which is 1.4, Sweden is the goodest country. And yes, it is unique in that it's the only country so far that's managed to reach that top spot twice. Denmark comes second, Finland comes sixth, in this case, a little higher than Norway, which comes 10th. But as I, as I always remind people, when we're talking about the Good Country Index, this is a very long list of countries. And mm-hmm. so it's one shouldn't pay too much attention to small differences in ranking. I tend to look at these as clusters. If you're in the top 10, the top decile, then you are amongst the best examples of countries in terms of achieving that 
that harmonious balance between looking after your own affairs and not doing any harm to the global commons. And the Nordics, yes, they they dominate the top the top rankings. Does it does this do the Nordics any good? It's an interesting question. I, I uh, one comes across an awful lot of of governments and government officials who appear to think that these kinds of indicators are really much more important than they are. Let's remember one very important thing, whether we're talking about somewhat popular indicators like my own good country index or rather more specialized ones, it's still only a very, very tiny proportion of people who are even aware of their existence, um, let alone look carefully at the results. Now, a lot of governments I speak to seem to imagine that the whole world is checking out the transparency index or the, the corruption index or or, or or the Gini coefficients or whatever it is. And of course, it, it's a tiny fraction of 1% of the world's population that's even aware that these things exist. It makes you wonder that there are quite a lot of governments who have whole departments set up exclusively to monitor their country's performance in the various rankings and do whatever they can to make sure that they rank as high as possible each year. Well, we, we've run into that in South Korea, haven't we, where there was a sort of fixation with these things? Yeah. Well, they 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 do have some influence over elites, and elites on the whole have more influence than mass. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got an indicator that is that, that's widely consulted by, for example, foreign investors then it makes sense uh, to try and make sure that you rank as high in it as you can. So realistically, uh, although governments often don't seem to make the distinction, if if you care about indicators because you care about a specific marginal influential audience who actually looks at those things, that does make sense up to a point. But if if you think it's going to affect your country's overall image, you've got another thing coming. But do you think the positive image helps you know you've spoken in the past about feeling you have this tailwind if you have a positive reputation can you actually point to things that the nordics have been able to do that they wouldn't have got to do if they were portugal or uh, austria or, or 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 a country that doesn't have that kind of agreeable tailwind Right. Okay. I I think I'm slightly misunderstood your question. I thought you were saying well, they're both good. The, the one's the extension of the other. Yeah. So so the two ways of, of asking the question are one: do the do the rankings themselves make a difference to the country's image? Right. Which, is, which is my answer is generally speaking no. Right. Does having a good image make a difference to a country's performance? Oh yes. This is really very significant, and in almost every area of endeavour. So almost whatever um, a country wants to do, whether to whether it's to attract things into its inbox, foreign investment, talent, and all the re- tourists and all the rest of it, or whether it's stuff that goes in the outbox, sending out its own talented people abroad, uh, exporting its products and services and all the rest of it, inbox and outbox both benefit enormously from a positive reputation. And there the parallel with the private sector is very is very clear. The companies with the good images find it easier to sell more products at a higher margin, and the companies without much of an image find that everything is a struggle. The same is undoubtedly true of countries. So for the Nordics, the fact that they've got that good image enables them to do better than they otherwise would without a shadow of doubt. By by enormous factors, there have been papers published over the years that have made staggering claims for what a difference a good national image can actually make. 
certainly Norway is a rather good example of that. It's, it's a small country in terms of population, wealthy, of course, but in terms of global GDP rankings, uh, not really very significant. And yet it has this massive image, way in excess of its real geostrategic importance. Why is that? Well, it's, you know, because it behaves itself and because people like it. And as a result of that, that good image, it finds it so much easier and so much cheaper to attract tourists to a country that isn't a natural tourist destination, to attract investment to a country that's, uh, as I said, in trade terms, somewhat marginal, and so on and so on and so on. So a a good image for a country is a, a structural advantage. And if you have a weak or a negative image, it is um, a deficit. Well, here's an interesting thing. Historically, historically, those countries have only really threatened each other. I mean, they've mm. had tremendous rivalries and wars and invasions and centuries where one has ruled the other. And the whole the, the three crowns on the Swedish coat of arms are go back to a time when, you know, the, the, the three kingdoms were united, which was you know, required all kinds of struggles. And yet you, you don't see many places outside of the region that have a, a bad historical memory no. of the, 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 the Nordic countries. You know, maybe maybe people on the east coast of the UK might still be traumatized by Viking raids, but uh, they, they've got a, a, tr- a remarkable record of, of being aloof from the big global struggles of, of you know, maybe the last 250 250 years and uh, you know perhaps that's part of this story too that 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 we don't have the the same negatives that are present with the other significant european countries that had a more active colonial past for example or or were were in, involved in the world wars in a different way and yeah. sweden's problem was that it was neutral uh, in World War II, and a part of the history of the image of Sweden is convincing the world that that was okay and is not some dreadful moral burden that has to be expurgated in later years. This is the same problem that Switzerland has had. Um, yeah, that's absolutely and a, a very good, uh, very good comparator. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, power has clearly moved, shifted away from 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 the margins of Europe during during the last couple of hundred years, and these countries have subsequently found themselves struggling to survive, rather small and rather distant, and um, no longer politically powerful. And as a consequence of that, it's sort of pulled them together, and they've learnt, I think, very quickly and very deeply the importance of cooperation and collaboration. And those those words, cooperation and collaboration, are the words that one hears most frequently when when working in the Nordic region. It's 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 an approach that they it's an article of faith amongst the amongst the Nordics and particularly amongst the Scandinavians. And that I, that is I think also part of the reason why they they rank so high in the Good Country Index because they have a habit of collaboration. They are a particularly cooperative mini region within an intrinsically collaborative whole, i.e. Europe. Mm -hmm. And so they simply have more practice, more experience of working together across borders than most other countries. And they've seen that it works and they believe in it. And therefore, it's not really surprising that on the indicators that, that create the Good Country Index rankings, they perform exceptionally well. This is what they do every day and they've always done it. 
Yeah, and you can see how there are other European countries that kind of have the same ethic. I'm struck by the collaborative initiatives coming out of Netherlands. Mm. And I think you see the same good country pattern with Netherlands, don't you? This is northern, this is northern European, the northern European culture. It's the UK, somewhat apart as we know, but broadly speaking, northern continental Europe. Um, it is it is all about working together. The, the the other interesting thing, just going back to this this point about the Swedes being quote unquote the the Americans of Scandinavia, the extent to which in that framework of collaboration you push yourself forwards or you don't is very interesting, and it's one of the big differences between the Scandinavian nations. The Swedes are rather good at making themselves the star of the show. They they brag rather effectively and rather disarmingly all the time. The the Norwegians, uh, the Danes, and the Finns don't. They do the opposite. And if you look at their their trading habits over the last few centuries, you 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 can see that the Danes and the Norwegians, rather like the Dutch, equally modest, tend to make partnerships in other parts of the world. Um, they their their profits tend to come from unbranded industrial components. They're B two B. They don't care to be in the in the spotlight, producing huge numbers of consumer goods to end users. Whereas Sweden is all about that. So you know you'd have a you'd have a tough job trying to think of ten famous consumer brands from Norway or Denmark. Sweden is easy, and that's a really important difference between them. I think that the, the Swedes have always been instinctively protagonists, and they push themselves forwards, and they benefit as a result. And and you can see that, as I said, in the Nation Brands Index, their image is is, is just stronger than the others. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say that the the all, all the Nordics that are not Sweden have to pay a kind of Sweden tax on everything they do. So if you if you are, for example, a Danish consumer brand like Bang and Olufsen, who make high end hi fi, I think it's probably very likely that um, some percentage of their profits end up going to Sweden. Um, because most people don't imagine that that's a Danish consumer brand. The, 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 the concept isn't familiar to them. They're aware that it's Scandinavian. And because Scandinavia is associated with Finland, Bang & Olufsen are probably paying a bit of a Sweden tax there. So that 5% of all the goodwill that Bang & Olufsen accumulates probably ends up going to Sweden and, and right. to Scandinavia generally. And it's probably it's probably the same thing with. Uh, with I, guess, I guess Royal Copenhagen porcelain <laughs> are doing more famous because the, the the location is right there in the title. But one thing that impresses me about that region is the openness to learning overseas and a, a kind of a dynamic where the, there is no assumption that you have to be kind of intellectually self sufficient. And there are tremendous examples historically of or Danes. That's the country I've looked most closely at. Danes going overseas, studying, coming back to Denmark with their skills, uh, techniques that they've learned elsewhere, and then transforming the quality of the indigenous product in, in Denmark. So you take Jakobsen learning brewing in Germany and coming back and founding Carlsberg, and then actually building that into Danish culture by setting up an institute that's all about dialogue with foreign countries. So it really becomes part of the what it is to be Nordic, is to learn from others, to bring it home, to put your own spin on it, and, and to be in a, a cooperative dialogue with the, with, with the outside world. And there are many regions that don't see things that way yet, or haven't internalized it to, to, to that extent. 
And, and it's not it's not total fantasy to speculate that that's something to do with their remoter history. These are seafaring nations with very long sea coasts and not particularly productive native lands. And so the, that combination means that if you want to prosper and you don't want to starve, you have to get on a ship and you have to go to other places and you have to right. do it respectfully. Right. The Vikings tried the other way. That worked too. But you, you, you go to other countries and you learn from them or you steal from them. I, and I also think that the experience in the 19th century w- w- was important. You know, there's a saying in Danish politics immediately after they lost the war with Prussia and lost those southern provinces that what what has been outwardly outwardly lost can be inwardly won. And the idea that you can focus on the self and being as good as you as you can be and uh, having a meaningful inner life for your people that, that that's a struggle you can you can engage in rather than just defending your outermost your outermost provinces and so it's like an alternative frontier for the country an inner frontier rather than holding the border which they they couldn't do at that at, at that moment or had failed to do at that moment mm. and any any uh, enthusiast for human development studies would uh, immediately applaud that for being just tremendously more advanced and more grown up than the majority of other countries yeah I think it's relevant to you know some places right now that have suffered you know the tragic loss of provinces that they valued. Thinking maybe of Ar- Ar- Armenia, that to have an alternative idea of what your national identity might be, rather than holding firm the outer lines. Yes, but of course one has to one has to look as as ever at the anthropological dimension. And the fact of the matter is that the the Nordic countries are able to take that very wise and very humble and even self-deprecating approach because according to for example the Hofstede data they are predominantly feminine societies and the things that they value are not speed conquest domination power and all the rest of it it's more like wholeness togetherness community and so forth whereas a culture like the Armenian culture is very strongly masculine and it's about dominance and it's about owning things and it's about having tangible proofs of your power. So you can immediately see on that axis why it's much harder for an Armenia, an Armenian to reconcile themselves to the loss of territory than it is for a, for a Dane. Well, let's, I want to flip this around, take it, and to me, one of the, one of the indicators of having a good reputation is if somebody is out there trying to undermine it. Mm. And a phenomenon that has worried people in government in the Nordics in recent years is a a negative branding of the Nordics, a demonization of the Nordics by media associated with Russia and sponsored in some cases explicitly by the Kremlin. And they have hit on, the Kremlin has hit on a narrative associating the Nordics with sexual corruption, particularly child endangerment. And this is of great concern to certainly the government of Denmark. And I know the Norwegians are worried about it too. And you can see how by... Every time there's a story that can be spun in this way, it is spun and it is pushed by Kremlin media. For example, there was a case a few years ago where a giraffe died, or a giraffe had to be euthanized at the Copenhagen Zoo. 
and the zoo thought it'd be great to bring in school kids to view the autopsy of the giraffe. Now, the Russians were able to talk about this as if it was child abuse. Mm. Also, the phenomenon of Nordic people adopting kids from Russia has been turned into a negative by saying, oh, the Nordics are adopting these kids to molest them. Yeah. And and then the more the harder the Nordics try to adopt Russian kids, the the more interested they can be portrayed as being in 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 molesting Russian Russian children. And there's other stuff too. I, I don't want to repeat the rumors because the, some of them are so colorful that the repetition completely outweighs the denial. But it, it it's become absurd where where there are you know nordic laws to outlaw a thing become indication that it's a common practice various perversions and that that are being highlighted or alleged by russians and i I think that's really interesting because surely that does indicate a a desire to or, or a recognition that a lot of people in that part of the world that northern european part of the world including russia do admire what's possible in the Nordics. And if, if it weren't something that was seen, the positive reputation were not seen as positive, they wouldn't bother to undermine it. So it's a backhanded compliment, even as it is a, a problem. Sure. Well, I mean, the strategy behind it, if one can dignify it with that, with that word, is, is very clear. These are the poster children of successful liberal Western democracy. They're the examples that are always adduced whenever people are defending that model, and, and justifiably so. So if the people who are contesting that model and, and want to see it defeated manage to destabilize the whole system and question people's beliefs that though these countries are well-run and well-managed and that people are happy there, well, that's their agenda. What's so very interesting about these stories that are attempting to paint a rather bleak picture of Scandinavia, is how promptly they're reflected and mirrored by elements within the country themselves. Uh, you, right. you, an awful lot of the, for, for example, you'll remember at a certain point, Sweden uh, changed the way that it counted rape cases, and that caused a hike in the figures. And that was immediately portrayed on social media as Sweden becoming the rape capital of the world. And the people who jumped onto that story, most it was a fake story because it it, it really wasn't true at all. But the people who jumped most vigorously onto that bandwagon were Swedes. One would hazard a guess from the extreme right. And I was at first puzzled by this. Why why are they trying to damage the image of their own country? Normally, you would expect right-wingers to be nationalists and promoting their own country. It did just occur to me that conceivably what they were trying to do was to put off migrants. It's a little bit like deliberately soiling your own nest so that you don't get other birds trying to get into it. But all of the stories appeared to be deliberately chosen to put off would-be migrants. They were stories about, for example, the lack of adequate pension funds available for older people. So it's as if they were putting out a warning message to a Syrian family who might want to move to Sweden. Our government will let you starve in your old age. Your daughters will be raped in the cities. Gangs of racists will will beat you up if you venture outdoors at night and uh, it, it's it's a real threat to the to to the good name of those countries alongside it is a parallel threat which is amongst that small percentage of the world's population that is aware of these rankings 
there's beginning to be a little bit of a, of a blowback in the sense that you hear more and more people saying, oh God, not the Scandinavians being perfect again. And it ends up human nature being what it is, as interpreted as a kind of appalling smugness on the part of the Scandinavians. They're all right. They don't care about us, which is, again, really very unfair. But uh, it's a challenge. And if you've got a, a very good reputation, as I always say, it's a thing, you, a thing you rent, not a thing you own. And you need to continue to deserve it. Yeah. And I think if you talk to wise community leaders, intellectuals in the region, understand that the region still has things to learn to retain its positive reputation and particularly around multiculturalism. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking that it's now it's 25 years ago, I did a lecture in Finland for the British Council and asked who in the audience thought that large scale immigration into the UK had benefited the UK and every hand of this was Finns who studied the UK every hand went up they could all see how Britain was better off for having had large-scale migration and then I said and who would like Finland to benefit in the same way and every hand went went down the inward lookingness the hostility the, the you know the kind of a low underlying xenophobia mm. is a risk and you know, a, a wise Nordic would underst uh, understands that there are some barriers the society is still negotiating. And, and maybe the cartoon crisis goes to the heart of, of that issue, where for all the virtues of Danish society, they were not able to deal well with the cartoon crisis and uh, insisted not only on publishing the cartoons, but then on not seeing that there was a need for an apology or for a uh, a management of bad feeling within the country or or in the wider world. But why don't you talk us through what you saw with with the cartoon crisis back in uh, two thousand six? I certainly agree with you that the the response wasn't very clever. I think it was Anders Fogh Rasmussen who was the prime minister at the time, and I seem to remember him taking really quite a combative stance in, in the international media and kind of lecturing the Muslim world and explaining to them, this was a newspaper. In, in my country, the state doesn't control newspapers. And, and his point is, is correct. I mean, of course, it's absolutely true. This is not Denmark criticizing Islam. Um, this is a newspaper deciding to criticize Islam. But then again, he, the, the state supported it. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not as, as, as simple as all that. I suppose what, for me, the cartoon crisis showed more than anything else was the risk of having too simple a reputation. Denmark always ranked very high in the Nation Brands Index, especially within Europe, but even beyond Europe, wherever you looked, people admired Denmark enormously. And if you looked at the responses of people in predominantly Muslim countries around the world, they admired Denmark no less than anybody else. In many cases, because Denmark was the kind of country they wished they lived in. It was prosperous, it was fair, it was wealthy, it was secure, what everybody wants in an ideal country. And that was really all they knew about it, nothing else, because it's not a prominent country, it's not a famous country, it's not a country that sticks its neck out in any way. So they knew it was Scandinavian and therefore they knew that it was well-organized and generally a very um, well put together place. And then the cartoons were published and they knew two things about Denmark, that it was the Scandinavian country that had insulted their prophet. And of course, the insulting the prophet outweighed 
the value of it being a, a Scandinavian country because that's only a benefit to its own population and not to anybody else. And that 50% of negative equity was enough to sink the ship. Now, that couldn't have happened with the United States of America because people know so many things about America, good, bad, and indifferent, that one thing, even if it's tremendously bad, and Lord knows America's done some tremendously bad things in the past, like actually invading with... <laughs> bristling with weapons and bombs, predominantly Muslim country, and yet it doesn't sink the ship. So the risk, I think, for, the, for, for, for countries like Denmark and, and, and its, its Nordic compatriots is that people just don't know enough about them. The image is very good, but it's very thin, and that's the risk. Well, but I guess that drawing this to a conclusion, we're left again with, with a kind of message that good reality makes a good image but that you have to work at maintaining the good reality. And as we move forward, there's more need for cooperation and more need for sensitivity towards diversity inside your own country and and with the outside world. And Nordics are well-placed to operate in this world plainly, but uh, it, it isn't sustained without effort. And the situation is more delicate when somebody's out there accentuating the negative and looking for you to make mistakes, which is, you know, with the, the case with the, with Kremlin media. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Nick Cull. And I'm still. Simon Arnold. <laughs> I'm still. <laughs> <Simon Arnold. laughs> yes.